saying the Lord be with you. Thank you. This is our last sermon uh, in the series we've been doing on the book of Ruth for four weeks. We've called it Lessons from the Journey. And we come to the end here really seeing God's abundant provision for Naomi and how God uses Ruth to be the conduit of blessing and restoration for her. We've journeyed quite a while with these two ladies, and we've experienced the losses that they carried, and we've seen how they've been required to move forward in faith and in trust, especially when things have looked very, very uncertain for them. And we left Ruth last week waiting, really uncertain as to how her future and Naomi's future would play out, and all of it hinged around this idea that a kinsman redeemer or a family guardian needed to step in and redeem Naomi's family's land. But we left them uncertain as to who would do this for them. Last week, I told you about a couple of Hebrew laws that were at play in the story, and I want to go back to that and to look at the larger context of the Mosaic Law in order to understand more fully what's happening for Boaz and Ruth, where we find them in chapter 4. Leviticus 25 describes the process of redeeming land for family who has lost it, and you won't find this text in your notes, so just listen or you're free to read along in your Bible, Leviticus 25. Verses 23 through 25 says this, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If anyone among you becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Here written into their highest code of conduct for society is this provision that land that is lost by a family will be redeemed. And there is a process by which that's supposed to happen. God says this needs to happen because the land actually doesn't belong to anyone who buys it. He says the land is mine. What a different perspective that is. The land belongs to God, and so those who dwell there can't take a posture of owning it, of possessing it. Rather, they need to take a posture of sharing it. The land belongs to God. God even says those who dwell there are dwelling there as my guests. They are foreigners and strangers in my land. There needed to be a way for family who had lost it to receive it back, and God says this is why and this is how. When we look at the Mosaic Law, there's very little that makes sense from a modern economic standpoint. But if we read it through the lens of a God whose heart is all about justice and righteousness and restoration and caring for those who need it, then it makes complete sense. Another provision in this same chapter describes how the people of God were to care for native Israelites who became impoverished. Those who came from Israel but fell on hard times were to be treated this way. Help them as you would a foreigner or a stranger, so they can continue to live among you. The idea is that God's people would, of course, naturally be treating the foreigner and the stranger very, very well. Helping them, taking care of them. And this law is saying, now make sure you also do that for the native people of Israel among you who fall on hard times. Similarly, when people got really desperate, they might have to sell themselves into slavery, and Leviticus 25 addresses this. There was a process in place that if this happened, they must be eventually set free, ruled over, and that there is a time for their servitude to end. 
God's plan never involved people living into a perpetual state of bondage. I think this is important because in all three of these examples, we see this built-in correction when things go wrong. This rewriting of the story that is guaranteed to happen in God's plan, in God's economy. This is how God works. He takes what goes terribly wrong and he writes it. And it's right here in the Mosaic Law. I'm taking us back to these laws because I want us to see the greater context for what's happening for Boaz in this moment where we find him in Ruth 4. Because he's living out the principles that these laws are built upon. Principles of righteousness and justice and compassion and provision. In his own way, in his very specific situation, in his specific scenario, he's living into the heartbeat of God who set these laws in place in the first place. The God who owns all things, who exhorts us to provide the way that he provides. We get to live life according to something bigger than what's best for us. What sounds good and fair to us? We're citizens of this world, and as such, we have a responsibility to and for the rest of humanity. And something else God makes really clear in these laws is that we're called to be free. His people were meant to come out of bondage, to live in freedom. Those who found themselves in a very hard time in an oppressive system were designed to see that end. Now, Naomi's family hadn't sold themselves into slavery, but they had forfeited their land and everything that they laid claim to in Israel when they left. And they did that to find refuge in an oppressive government, in an enemy kingdom of Moab. And we wonder what would drive someone to do that, to seek refuge in a place that had been far less than friendly to them, or even to sell themselves into slavery, as Leviticus describes some native Israelites had to do. And we know they could only do that if they were desperate, if they saw no other way. There are many examples of this in our world today, but the one that comes closest to my heart is what Ron and Gemma were talking about. We see this over and over again in the lives of the young women in particular that I've worked with for a decade in Southeast Asia. And there is this idea that they must sell themselves into slavery, into prostitution, because it's the only way they can provide. And the weight of providing for their families rests on the shoulders of the women in that culture, and so they do it any way they can. There is this bondage that they somewhat willingly submit themselves to. And even when you offer them an alternative, it's very hard for them to leave it. See, God's heart has never been for this. He doesn't want perpetual bondage. He wants us free. Those stories can feel really far to us. It's hard for us to identify with that. But what about our lives? Where are we in slavery or in bondage? Is anyone here living under some kind of oppression? I would imagine that we are. Because we often submit ourselves to bondage when we act as though we're still dead in our sins instead of alive with Christ. We submit ourselves to bondage when we allow ourselves to be walked on and when we're crippled by the opinions and judgments of others or when we shrink back from our God-given destiny due to a fear of intimidation or this mistaken sense of duty or obligation. We submit ourselves to bondage when we disconnect from our souls or when we stubbornly walk our own way and these things God wants us free from. We're going to talk about this more at the end of the service, but for now, I want us to think about how Ruth experienced 
a new level of freedom and how freedom comes to her family through Boaz. So let's look at Ruth 4, verses 1 through 8. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And we'll stop there for a moment. If you remember where we left off last week in Ruth 3, Naomi had told Ruth to rest, to wait, that Boaz wouldn't rest himself until this matter was settled. And we see this happening. After the threshing floor, Boaz leaves. He heads to the city gate where we find him today. And he waits for this closest relative of Naomi's family to arrive. And he invites him into a conversation, and he gives him the opportunity to redeem the family land back. And the man's initial response is, certainly, I'll do that. Then Boaz tells him, well, in addition to that, you need to marry Ruth, the widow. This is very, never see women in land as two-for-one deals. It's not there. So technically, he could have redeemed this land without marrying Ruth, but Boaz doesn't give him that choice. He says, this is how it is. You can redeem the lamb, but you must also marry Ruth. I think he was really concerned about her welfare. He wanted to make sure she was taken care of. What happens next is also very interesting. The man takes his sandal off, and the text says this is how transactions were legalized in Israel at the time. That may be true, but the way the law described this process was very different. There was actually a very clear process for this transaction. When a woman's deceased husband's brother would not marry her, she actually was meant to take the sandal off of that man. This is what the law described. And then she would spit in his face. It's in the text. And after doing so, she would tell the elders this man won't marry me. The whole thing was meant to be a disgrace, and then his entire family would be known as the family of the unsandaled, which apparently was a deep insult. And this was a very different process than what we see happening here in Ruth 4. In this instance, Boaz kind of takes care of the story, and again, and it may just be my conjecture, but I think this is another way in which he's caring for her and not submitting her to something that would be quite awkward at the least and humiliating at worst. Once this whole thing happens, then Boaz is ready and tells the elders publicly, this is what will happen. Now I will redeem the land and I will marry Ruth. 
Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. <coughs> Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And again, we're going to stop there. I do cringe at the language of buying Ruth, but it is the system. It's, it's the culture of the time. Boaz announces that this is what he's going to do, and then the elders bless him. And this seems to be a really common practice for Boaz. If you remember, he greets his employees with a blessing, and they bless him back. And here we see it happen again. The elders bless him. But they give him a very strange and very complicated blessing for his family. They say that they want his home to be like that of Leah and Rachel, the two women who built up the house of Israel. And it's wonderful that they're acknowledging these two women building the nation, but there's a lot of complication around Rachel and Leah. And then they reference Perez, son of Tamar and Judah. Let's go back to Rachel and Leah. Those two women lived in constant competition with each other because they shared the same man. And so one was competing all of the time for children, and the other was competing relentlessly for time and affection and love from her husband. This wasn't healthy family dynamics. This isn't something you would normally bless someone with wanting to see them perpetuate. And yet their stories seem very mild compared to the story of how Perez came to be. The child of Judah and Tamar. Genesis 38 tells this story, and it's not a positive narrative at all. It's filled with betrayal and really the depravity of humanity rising to the surface. I'm going to summarize the story because I think it's actually important for us to look at since it's referenced here in Ruth 4. And I believe that there's an important lesson we learn from it in that God brings beautiful things out of dysfunction, that he isn't limited by the mess. Now, I will also say, if there are tiny ears in this place, this story is not for you, although I will be careful about how I relay it. The story goes like this. A woman named Tamar lost both of her husbands. Both were brothers. Following the Leveret marriage laws, she had married one man. He died. Her brother married her. He also died. This was of course, putting her in a very vulnerable place. And so her father-in-law, Judah, invites her to come and live in their family home until their youngest son is old enough to marry her, which that alone is really awful if we think about a woman waiting for her younger brother-in-law to grow up enough to marry her. But that's the situation she was in, and that was what would perpetuate her future and her family's name. Now, Judah, her father-in-law, at some point changes his mind once this young boy grows up because he's already lost two sons. And he thinks the common denominator might be Tamar. Now, this is very misogynistic, but it's the reality. And so he says no. 
Tamar knows that she has been wronged, but she has absolutely no power in the situation. And so she uses the power of her mind, she devises a plan, and she dresses herself in disguise as a prostituted woman, and she waits by the road for her father-in-law to pass by, knowing he'd take advantage of the opportunity, which he did. She becomes pregnant, and later Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has become pregnant, not knowing it's the same woman. He's really angry when he learns that Tamar has become pregnant through prostitution. In fact, he wants her burned to death for her sin. Never acknowledging his own sin, the same one, or the way he had treated her unjustly. And then when he learns that he's the father, she has a very ingenious way of telling him, if you read the story you'll see it, his heart is pierced. And he says, the children that come from that union are twins, Perez and Zerah. So Boaz comes from an absolute mess. Perez is Boaz's ancestor. Now, Ruth also comes from a bit of a mess, because Ruth is from Moab. And Moab, the country, started through the union of Lot and his daughter, These are horrific stories, and we might wonder, why on earth are they in Scripture? But I think they're here because this is real life in a broken and very, very sinful world. And I think they're here because they tell us that God is not in any way limited by dysfunction or by sin. He wasn't limited by it then, and he is not limited by it now. And really, are those stories any messier than the ones that our families have endured or that we could point to in our own history, maybe our own lives? I would guess most of us could tell some similar stories. Stories of people who slept with somebody they shouldn't have, people who abused, people who withheld what was deserved, people who ignored those they should have been providing for, people who seduced others people who had children born of tragic circumstances. The list goes on and on, and I think we could tell some stories, probably every one of us. Well, we are in good company because Jesus comes from the line of Judah. We sang about it today, the Lion of Judah. And if we were to look at Matthew 1, we would see that Tamar is listed in Jesus' genealogy. Bathsheba is also there. There are several people that are interesting. Bathsheba, another woman who was led into an affair, probably with very little power in the situation, who does marry King David, and their union produces King Solomon, also in the line of Jesus. And then we see Rahab in that genealogy as well, another prostituted woman, a Gentile, and there she is in the genealogy of Jesus. And guess what? Ruth is there too. See, God sees He didn't allow these people who seemed to be victims of tremendous injustice, he didn't let them slip away into oblivion. He preserves their stories for us in Scripture. They mattered. Their stories mattered. And we see it right here. And then he puts those very people into the line of Jesus. God sees all of the mess, everything that is so disastrously skewed, and he steps into it and he redeems it all, and Jesus even comes from it. Let's go back to Ruth 4, 13 through 22. 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The genealogy here is abbreviated. Uh, scholars aren't sure how many generations are missing, but it's somewhere between 9 and 16 generations that are missing in this genealogy. The point isn't to tell every ancestor. The point is to draw a line directly from Obed to King David. The story ends with Boaz marrying Ruth and this abundance coming to Naomi. And again, we see that this story has started with Naomi's loss and it's ended with provision and restoration. And Ruth is this beautiful catalyst for all that she gains back. Verse 16 tells us it was Naomi who cared for Obed. In fact, she had such a prominent place in his being raised that he was called her son. Imagine how restorative that was for her. This woman who had lost two of her baby boys. Now her arms are filled again with this new little life who is the restorer of her. The women of the community name him. Those who had stood with her and heard and received her bitterness and her suffering, now they stand with her and they name her blessing. They stand with her in celebration. See, Naomi's journey led her to this moment, this abundance. And the pain of the pathway was great. This abundance in no way canceled that out, but it had prepared her for this. And it is through that baby that Jesus' earthly father is going to come. See, through the lives of two seemingly very vulnerable and grief-laden women, we learn lessons of such value. We've learned that we are meant to walk together because they've showed us how to do it. And we've learned that our suffering opens a door for authenticity where we get real about what's going on in our lives and we invite other people in. And we remember that the journey does lead us to abundance and that God sees every single hurt and every detail and every joy and everything that shouldn't have been and everything that should have been. And we remember that he's asking us to trust him that he's asking us to believe that he actually has good for us and that he not only wants us satisfied, but he wants to pour out a blessing so great we can't even hold it. And today we remember that he isn't for an instant limited by any amount of dysfunction in our families or in our work or in our own histories. He is in the process of leading us to an abundance through the mess. He wants us free. I want to close by asking if we are in need of some freedom today. Because we've looked at how this family's been freed from a lot of oppression. 
We've looked at how God's moved through the dysfunction. We've remembered that God had a whole economic system set up to right wrongs and to set captives free. Where is it that we need freedom? Are we in slavery to something today? What even seems impossible to be freed from, that we can't even imagine what it would feel like not to have it keeping us in chains? Well, today we want to take a step forward and actually believe and declare that freedom is ours. And so in a moment, we're going to participate in a practice that I want to explain now. You have some pieces of rice paper that look like this next to your sermon notes. If you could find those and begin to pass those to each other. And then we're going to invite you to use one piece and to write down what you want to be freed from. And to do it as a declaration, I am now free from this. Then we have bowls of water that will be all around the sanctuary. We invite you to come and just drop it in the water. Nobody will see it. Nobody will read it. It will dissolve in the water. And then we have a little bowl of salt next to the water. And we'd invite you just to toss a little salt in, representing your tears. Because these places of captivity and bondage are often places where we shed many tears over. And so let's offer those tears to God as a gift. Let's give them back to him. And so I invite you throughout the next two songs to simply come as you feel led. Let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into this practice. Jesus, we pray that you would move among us, that you would set us free, and that you'd bring to mind those things that you want to break the chains over. God, we surrender to you. Would you meet with us? Would you set us free? In Jesus' name, amen.